From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. We had this initial like laser powder bed was just all all it and a bit and it really dominated the market if you looked at machine sales and everything. Whereas what we're seeing over the last couple of years is actually that's shifting a bit and the, the pies the pie's growing, but also the slices of the pie are changing. And we're getting a lot more what you'd call like, you know, I guess non-conventional 3D printing. Um, types of techniques emerging and and the reason that they're emerging and and really starting to take market share is because they're lower cost. That was Alex Kingsbury. Alex's career in additive manufacturing spans both industry and R&D specializing in bringing new technologies to market. She has successfully co-created solutions and partnerships in the sectors of aerospace, defense, biomedical, and resources. Alex is currently an additive manufacturing industry fellow at RMIT University in Australia. And there she works to enhance links between industry and the university. These links extend across research and teaching and learning functions at the university. Prior to this role, she worked as a consultant to industry specializing in metal additive manufacturing. Alex holds a Bachelor of Engineering degree with a major in metals processing and is currently a PhD candidate at RMIT. Well, Alex, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Um, Why don't we just get started with um, telling us what, what are you up to right now? Oh, thanks, Mike, for having me on. Um, so what am I up to now? I am uh, working at RMIT University. Um, I'm an industry fellow there for additive manufacturing. So an industry fellow role is a little bit unique and there are a couple of uh, sort of fellow roles around, but they're, they're, you know, they tend to be pretty curated. Um, and certainly at RMIT, what it means is that you're someone who's had a lot of experience um, in industry and can bring those connections and knowledge into the university setting. Um, and it means that you can essentially be an academic without having a PhD. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've had a long standing relationship with RMIT, I actually went there as a student. So in a lot of ways, it's like kind of coming back home. Um, but uh, as, it, as it so happens, I'm also working on a PhD as well. So I figured, if I'm going to be in the university setting, well, you know, there's like ready supervisors there, happy to help me, all the equipment I need. So uh, it's a great opportunity to, to um, pursue a PhD. It's always been something that's been, I guess, on my mind as to whether or not I would do it. Uh, and it's always been a question that's come up um, at various points in time in my career because I've always been a little bit on that sort of uh, research and commercial interface. So... Yeah, now, now's the opportunity to do it. And I kind of knew that when I had the opportunity uh, at RMIT, it was either like, it's now or never. So, so that's what I'm doing now, as well as my job at, at RMIT. And what's it like in specifically with the additive space and getting engagement from companies? Do you see because it's additive manufacturing, kind of this um, newish technology for a lot of organizations that it's kind of easier to draw companies in? Or is it still quite challenging to kind of get people to be excited about the technology when it's in some cases still fairly unproven? Um, yeah, so it's, I, I don't find it's hard to get people excited about, about AM. Um, I think, you know, just um, being able to show people 
you know, the machines, being able to look at lasers, um, and and especially being able to uh, showcase some of the things that we've made and um, the projects that we've done. It like the excitement's never far far away from any of those stories. Um, but I think that when it comes to people actually putting their money where their mouth is and being willing to lay down their cash to invest in the technology and um, and getting them to really seriously consider adopting the technology, that's that's absolutely um, a big challenge. And and I guess the setting in Australia is um, such that, you know, manufacturing's been quite a strong set for us in the past, but it has been quite dominated by uh, major global companies um, and particularly in automotive. So, you know, we had a, a really strong automotive manufacturing presence here in Australia for a very long time. And that was really driven by uh, a lot of economic policies that were put in place quite a while ago um, and had been ramped up. And they were all around sort of protectionism of, of the industry. And unfortunately, what that meant is that it was, and, and so that, that those protectionism measures were really ramped up um, a lot over time. So where we got to in the 70s, um, they were the highest, I think, in the OECD. Um, so in the 80s and 90s, we had a real unwinding of those protectionism policies to the point now where we um, we really, we don't do mass auto manufacturing in, um, in Australia anymore. So that's been a really, really big shift. And I think a big shift in our psyche as well, um, because there has been a bit of a sentiment that's really um, pervaded around manufacturing is dead in Australia. Um, and there's been a lot of really hard work being done to try and reverse that that feeling because um, it's certainly not dead, it's just transforming. And, um, and the exciting part in that story is that there is a real opportunity here. Um, and, you know, like there is in, you know, in every other advanced economy in the world where um, a lot of that mass manufacturing um, has gone to those um, lower labour cost economies, um, and we're a, you know we're a high labour cost country, and so it gets pretty hard to justify a low value product. Um, but you know we have definitely a value in high value product um, where we can make that work for us, and and I think it really relies on advanced technologies, and it relies on um, having some some really good and deep IP as well. Uh, and and the you know the advantage of the whole automotive experiment, I suppose you could call it, is that we were able to develop uh, a really great capability in Australia. So you know we have some amazing product designers here, for example, um, and and in fact you know Ford um, has still maintained a um, design and research centre here in Australia um, as a result of that. Um, so it's not all bad news, definitely. But I suppose getting to your question, um, which is, you know, adoption, what we have in Australia for manufacturing now is that we have a lot of SMEs um, and a lot of them are family-owned businesses and uh, to convince them to make the jump into additive is actually pretty, is pretty difficult. There are a lot of barriers in place, um, not least of which is, is money and finances and cost. Um, this is not a, a low-cost technology and it's not a low-investment uh, type technology AM. So uh, I, I've done a lot of work with local industry here. Um, and, and I have to say, I think like the biggest hope I have for adoption of additive is um, actually in the startup space. So we, what, and that's really what 
we, you know, in the earlier days of my work in Additive, I was working a lot on trying to push um, the technology out into our existing manufacturing industry. And I found that there really wasn't a lot of appetite for it. There wasn't an appetite for risk and uh, there wasn't an appetite for higher capital investment. And uh, where we got the most traction was in, in that startup, um, startup community and like applied tech, um, you know, deep tech, applied tech startups and they're the ones that are really willing to uh to 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 really push into new frontiers of manufacturing yeah one of the things that i've observed in the u.s i mean similar with the small medium-sized organizations and manufacturing outfits is they're not opposed to adopting new technology it's one of the things where they don't see a demand for the the product. So if they're manufacturing in, in automotive already or in medical implants, uh, that's changing a little bit. But like if they were to buy a million dollar EOS or SLM or Renishaw system, they don't know if they can fill it with jobs or contracts. And by the time you get qualified, I mean, that's two or three years out. And so leave you hanging with a kind of hundred or a million dollar piece of equipment for 18 months is not always that appetizing is it similar in in australia where you you have kind of there's a somewhat lack of pull in terms of actual what can you actually 3d print uh yeah yeah and and also you know i think if you are looking at really pushing into particularly new product spaces and new markets like that requires a lot of work on the behalf of a business. Um, you know, they've really got to go out and um, develop networks, really do a you know proper market assessments and um, and do their due diligence. And it just that that's just time alone that takes an enormous investment. And that's before you've even decided to outlay the big capital, um, outlay 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 the money not just for the machine but also for the facility, but also and also for the working capital as well. And then you've got costs of software and then you've got training for your staff. And then as you say, you know, you've got about probably two years until you're really realistically um, getting product out into um, you know certified qualified product out. Uh, so that, that's, that's an enormous amount of investment and, and it's a big ask, um, particularly of a small business um and i think that um you know i have seen i have seen examples of where small businesses have done it um and they it, it has been a significant investment for them it is paying off um and and that's been that's been really great to see um but there's not too many and it's it's so unfortunate for, but there's this saying um in australia and it's like the three b's so um once you get the three B, and so Australians have got a very, like a, a bit of a laid back kind of, um, you know, reputation. Um, and I wouldn't, I, like I would say, Australians are very, very hardworking, um, but there is definitely a, um, a, a thing of, once you've made it to a certain point, then you can relax. And if you are a business and you've gotten your three Bs, so I'll tell you what the three Bs are, they are uh, boat, beach house, and BMW. <laughs> And so, so once a once a, um, a business owner kind of gets to that point in their life, the appetite for risk is very low. You know, like they are not willing to put years and you know years and lots of money um, into investing in something new that may or may not pay off. Um, so, 
yeah, it speaks a little bit to the mentality. <laughs> And is the government supporting these efforts as well through kind of university collaborations or other initiatives? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we definitely have a very, uh, like, very supportive and encouraging government and even more so now, like, sort of since COVID um, mm-hmm. than ever before. Uh, we've, we're probably, um, you know, Government in Australia is sort of federal and then state level. Um, we've seen a lot more support happening at the state level, um, but now we're actually starting to get some real traction on the, at the federal level, which is pretty important because, you know, this is what's informing all of our policies around manufacturing. And this is something I've been, you know, looking for is, um, you know, while we might have, might have really good state leadership around manufacturing, we actually really need a cohesive um, federal national plan um, around manu- manufacturing. And, um, and there, there is a couple of things that I've sort of really pushed for the government to do. Um, and, it, and it looks like, um, you know, fingers crossed, like they're actually starting to really take notice. And so, so COVID's been fascinating from that point of view um, because, you know, we, we are a, um, we're an island nation. Um, we, we are separated by great distances from our major trading partners and uh, it's, it's highlighted our supply chain um, insecurities, I suppose, or instabilities. And what we might need to do to look to uh, safeguard those. So I'm I'm not about saying we should bring back protectionist policies around manufacturing, but I am definitely about saying you know what we need to actually map out our critical supply chains and ensure that we have you know we can make what we need when we need it, um, and we don't you know if we can't rely on our major trading partners to supply to supply that. And I think that. You know, if I can comment, I guess, in more general terms around the state of the world, I think we are heading into a bit more of a a, a vulnerable, volatile period of time in history. And, um, you know, and something like a pandemic, which is, you know, totally um, sort of a a cause of nature, I guess. Um, But this is really highlighting uh, the, the ways in which countries need to look after their own interests. Sure. And... On the flip side of that, kind of what's the workforce like in kind of Australia, both on the small, medium-sized manufacturers that you, you've worked work with can, to bring into the university system and even large manufacturers, but also on the flip side of kind of students coming up in STEM or related fields, is manufacturing an attractive career path? Um, yeah, so... Um I guess um, one of the things, and this relates a little bit back to your, your last question, um, we have a very, very strong university tertiary education sector um, here in Australia, and uh, and that's been um, been able to be cultivated, I suppose, because we have uh, a lot of um, uh, international students that come to our universities, and so education is actually our second biggest export. Mm. Um, and and what that means is that we have we have a lot of international students coming into our universities, um, and and with them um, bring some good funding actually, and and also um, some you know competitiveness between the universities because you're not just competing for local students that happen to live in your area, um, you're also competing on a, on a global scale for the international students as well. So the universities have really sort of beefed up. Um, in terms of their capabilities and their offerings, um, and, uh, and and going 
sorry, I'm, I'm flipping between your two questions, but going back to your last question, because you were asking about government support for collaboration. Um, a lot of these, um, th there's a lot of support for university and um, commercial uh, uh, interests becoming more aligned. Um, and so there is pretty much every grant program out there is, you know, for projects involves some sort of university business cooperation. And that's where someone, you know, in my type of a role becomes quite important because it's being able to facilitate those connections um, between business and university. Not that, I mean, RMIT actually does a, a spectacular job, um, you know, without people like me anyway. Um, they're doing just fine. Um, but but it's, it's all about that move towards, uh, you know, really um, pushing universities outside of the lab and into, into businesses and cooperating a lot more um, because that's certainly the direction. Um, but you asked about the workforce uh, and... And I think that, um, like I said earlier, you know, we did have a bit of a, a national psyche around manufacturing instead. Um, RMIT actually still runs um, a Bachelor of uh, Manufacturing. Um, we're one of the few universities that do, though. Um, and, and certainly the, the, you know, the students in that program are very enthusiastic, but I suspect they're probably from families that have, you know, had manufacturing backgrounds or been involved or around and in circles with um, manufacturing communities. So they're probably a little bit more aware and attuned to the potential um, of manufacturing, I think. Um, yeah, uh, and, and in general, the workforce as a result of these very large research, um, you know, institutes and also universities, um, the workforce is very well educated. Uh, and that's, you know, that goes hand in hand too with our high labour cost as well. Um, I think that, you know, uh, as we were just sort of mentioning earlier before we started recording, um, there's a real lack though of, uh, you know, hands-on technicians. And, and I think that there's, there's, that, there's that really great gap um, of people that have those skill sets um, where you know you don't you don't need a degree and you certainly don't need a PhD to be really useful on a machine, um, and it's there's there's been a lot of work and effort put into by a certain industry association. I'm thinking of um, into uh, into into creating a cohort of um, workers that are you know highly skilled, um, but weren't necessarily looking to go down a university. Um, career path, you know, or qualification path, uh, and and that's that's a bit of a gap for us, and I think that's a bit of a gap though for for many many countries, you know, around the world, particularly where there's um, you know, highly educated workforces, because you, you can sort of polarize the workforce a bit. Right, we certainly see that here, no doubt. Um, mm. And kind of flipping flipping the switch a little bit, what's Tell me more about what you're working on for your research for your PhD. Oh, um, I'm looking at wire arc ended manufacturing. Um, so for high performance alloys, okay. um, aluminium alloys particularly. Um, yeah, so when I was considering what to do my uh, PhD topic in, um, I was, was thinking about, well, you know, what, what interests me and what, what sort of um, gets me excited. And to be honest, like all of additive does. So it was quite hard actually to, 
to, to really pin down what it is I wanted to do. Um, and uh, and what, I, but what I did think was that I've always been, like I said, on that sort of research commercial interface. And so one thing I knew was that what I wanted to do was a, um, a, a PhD that had some sort of applicability or sort of near translation to the commercial world. Um, and so that was like my primary driving force behind topic identification. And the other thing I was sort of thinking around at that time was, you know, I started out my, my you know, my earliest sort of, um, I guess, familiarity with, with additive was with electron beam powder bed. Um, and then, you know, not long after that, we invested in a laser powder, powder bed. And then, um, and we'd always, um, it, it, when I was at CSIRO, we'd always been in, working in cold spray. Um, so cold spray is like, I could talk about that for a whole nother podcast but I'll leave it but we you know we were taking cold spray from a coding technology into an additive technology um, and and so I'd had this great experience of working across all different types of modalities of AM and um, and what I was seeing or and, and because I'd been a bit working on well quite a lot working on the costing models and the business models around additive technologies is I was saying, you know, it just it becomes so hard to justify business models around a lot of these technologies, actually. And you know, knowing that it's going to be the 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 cheapest technology that has the easiest in, essentially. Um, and and we saw, and I, you know, I think you you would have you've been around long enough, Mike, to have seen the you know the progression of additive and in, in, in the metal space and how how things have worked and. Um, we had this initial like laser powder bed was just all all it and a bit and it really dominated the market if you looked at machine sales and everything whereas what we're seeing over the last couple of years is actually that's shifting a bit and the, the pies the pie is growing but also the slices of the pie are changing and we're getting a lot more what you'd call like you know i guess non-conventional 3d printing um types of techniques emerging and and the reason that they're emerging and and really starting to take market share is because they're lower cost primarily um and so anyway that's a long way of saying what i wanted to do was something that was near term you know near, near the commercial need but also was one of those sort of emerging fields that was um that, that was on the lower cost end and so that's where WireArc comes into that um WireArc's fantastic because it's got you know, it's based on welding technology, which is kind of pretty simple in a lot of ways. Um, and there's decades and decades and decades worth of knowledge, of welding knowledge and experience that you can translate um, into WireArc. Um, WireArc definitely has its own unique challenges that are unlike welding, um, but there's, there's that wealth of knowledge and experience that you're going to be bringing into this technology, which, you know, when you talk about laser powder beds, you really didn't have that. Um, and you know, and even you know, powder metallurgy itself um, was was still a sort of not a very well known field. Whereas welding, like you could have a welder in your backyard if you want to, you know, and do home projects. And so, so it's just a lot more well developed. Um, and Wirec also uses wire as a feedstock. And you know, it's sort of funny because like all of my early experience was all in titanium and titanium powder. And so it would have been a really natural fit for me to have gone on and done that as a PhD topic. Um, but uh, I, I've ended up doing aluminium and aluminium wire. Um, <laughs> and anyway, but the wire is, um, you know, again, 
you have, uh, it, it's like a commodity product, right? So you have all of these really established supply chains around welding wire, um, you know, certified alloys that you can use, just, just translate it straight into wire arc. Um, whereas, whereas AM, laser, you know, powder bed technologies are, um, are much more tricky in that respect. Uh, so I really liked the fact that, um, yeah, I felt wire arc definitely has a lot of, very untapped commercial potential. And we're definitely seeing that, you know, now, uh, last year, um, you know, these companies starting to spring up, but like having a traction with industry, like laser powder bed, I don't think really had. And what would, what do you think are the top applications for that technology? Um, so, so Warwick works really well. We have um, anything thin walled, um, and, and, and it's the whole sort of by the fly, you know, scenario argument. Um, and, and with that, it becomes, um, you know, if, you, if, it, if you're talking by the fly, then you're talking um, high value materials as well, which funnily enough, it's not what I'm, I'm looking at. I mean, aluminium is not that high value, but, um, but that, that is really a lot of where the value proposition comes in. Um, and then also lead sensitive items as well. So if you look at defense and aerospace, um, any, any sort of ribbed type of um, product where, you know, which is large, large scale, um, and you need to have big expensive machining centers to do that work and you're machining for a really long time. Um, and that, you know, every, yeah, machining is, is cheap, but it, it, if, you, if you're doing it for long enough, um, the cost really adds up very quickly. And when you're doing it with a high value material, uh, it, it becomes much less uh, economic to, to do it that way. And uh, yeah, much more feasible to do it with wire arc. Um, and in terms of, so yeah, aer aerospace defense is a really big user, but actually um, funnily enough, we're like seeing a lot of interest on the marine side of things. Um, so that's been quite, quite popular. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of aluminium alloys that are used in marine already, um, are, are, you know, they're weldable, they're whammable, and, um, and products can just be made pretty easily. And marine's not actually a really high value market either. Uh, and, and also it is a bit lead sensitive, lead time sensitive. Um, so, you know, you'll have a, um, have a ship come into, into dock and it's got a certain period of time for maintenance and then it's back out again. Um, you know, not dissimilar to defence, actually. Um, and I think a really exciting and emerging area is space as well. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we've seen Relativity Space just yeah. just this, this week, I think it was, um, you know, made a huge announcement about the, the, their recent funding round. And, um, uh, yeah, and, and so I think there's a lot more on the space side of things um, that can be, can be done and looked at. Yeah. And I really can relate to your pursuit of a PhD that has relevance. I mean, that was one of the draws that <laughs> made me jump from kind of where I was doing some of my other work to, to Loughborough and getting, um, I ended up being on a project that I was directly working at uh, a company, Burton Snowboards, during kind of a third of my PhD. So developing materials specifically that would eventually go on snow, I had to test them which was a tough part of the PhD on the mountains in the Sucks. winter time. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's that relevance that you get to glean from like, what are the real problems in industry? What are the, like, 
it's not always about the technical solution that's going to solve something. It's like knowing the right kind of angle to sell it or the angle to pitch it up the value chain. And what do you actually have to prove? Is, is it not mechanical properties? Is it appearance and speed? And um, I think that grounding is was certainly very beneficial for me to to get during that time and, and hearing the voice of the customer um, in, in some aspects. So I think that's... Mm, yeah, it's so, it's so lucky to have that experience of working with a, with a customer during your PhD um, and being able to get that sort of real-time feedback because uh, often you know, they, the work is done almost in isolation um, and it's not until afterwards when the, the papers are published and the work's done and um, it's like, oh, okay, we wish you'd actually looked at that instead, you know. Um, but that really comes from my, my background at CSIRO. So, you know, my first job there was um, in doing those commercialisation studies and it was what I thought was so interesting and valuable about the work that I was doing was being able to look at something on a lab scale um, and then scaling it up to a commercial scale. So doing doing all of the concept design around that, but then also doing the costing. And then after the costing, going in, doing the market analysis and saying, okay, where's, where does this fit in in a market? Um, and how can we justify it, basically? Um, and the best part of it was being able to feedback um, new research directions into the project. And so... And it might even be something simple, like for example, there was one project where uh, they were using a lot of argon and, um, and they said, oh, when it gets to commercial scale, um, it's fine that we're using a lot of argon because we'll just recycle it, that's no problems. Um, that's, that's what they do at commercial scale, but it's like, well, actually, you don't, you don't know that because they don't do this at commercial scale just yet. And, um, and if, we do the, if we do the figures on recycling it, um, it actually makes it quite expensive. It makes it quite expensive from a capital point of view, um, which for any business that's looking to invest, you know, capital is, um, it's the thing that eats into your, um, you know, your, your hockey stick curve, your return on investment, you know, it goes right down in those first couple of years. And that's really not what you want to see um, out of a project. You want to try and minimise the upfront cap capital, you know, and, and get some revenue pretty quickly. Um, and so, so what, you know, what, what, how that was able to inform the research direction then of that project was like, well, actually, Argonne's really important. You know, you've, we've all been ignoring it all this time, trying to get the product, you know, product purity up. Um, but, but let's be really mindful of that Argonne um, use and try and look how, at ways that we, which we can minimise minimize that um, and then feed that then into our commercial model to really dramatically bring down the price or the cost of our product, right? So you, you can make some really good research decisions when you're able to apply some commercial sensibilities. I mean, this is very much industrial research, right? And, and like having given my little soapbox <laughs> rant, um, I, you know, I absolutely believe that there is room for fundamental research because that is, you know, what we're going to be doing in 20 years' time. Um, but for me, you know, my, as you can probably tell, the passion really is in, in the industrial research. And so what sorts of advice do you give to people kind of coming up the ranks either in the university system or just generally interested in the additive space to get their start? Um, so... Well, you know, one thing I find is really interesting is like uh, if you look at 
people who are in additive and then you look at their career progression and sort of what, what they've done and how they've gotten into 3D printing. Because, you know, I know for me, um, I, I feel almost um, like how can I give advice on getting into 3D printing because I, I, I found it completely by accident as probably most people have. Um, and so far on this podcast, uh, it's been, I think I've done 21 interviews and I think almost tw- 20 or 20. Uh, 21 <laughs> found that to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not really sure I have the, I have the recipe for success in getting into additive. Um, when actually, um, I was just speaking with Janet Carr, um, from Link3D yesterday. Um, and she and I are um, involved in women in 3D printing. And one of the things she's doing for, there's a whole, um, a uh, lot of work that they're doing with youth, um, women in 3D printing. And one of the things that they're doing is profiling uh, women in 3D printing and then asking them a couple of questions. But down the bottom, Janet's got a little um, career progression. And and I thought that, I, I made the comment to her, I said, that is such a great idea because the thing is, is that it's, it's not like I could say to someone, oh, just do what I did because, you know, what I did was very unique and also very um, time dependent and also... Yeah, very much like I, it's not like I was really seeking it out. Um, but I think that if you can, if, if as a young person, you can look at lots of different people in the industry and see all of the different ways in which they've found 3D printing, um, then that gives almost like a, a macro view of what a career in additive looks like. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's a really kind of cool, cool way to do it. And I love the work that women in 3D printing do, you know, from that point of view. Um, but in general, I mean, I have, as part of my job, I do supervise students. I supervise master's students and, um, and final year students, usually for their, their you know, it's their, it's their final year thesis. And so they're just finishing up when they're with me. Um, and, and it's always really, um, it's, it's always really fun to, to be there for them as they're just finishing uni and, and about to launch into the job market. Um, but honestly, some of the best advice has been not 3D printing specific at all. And it's just been, um, and like a bit cliche, but like, you know, be true to yourself and be true to your passions and, um, and, and your interests. And, uh, and one thing I think a lot of people feel pressured to do is have a plan for where they're going to go and what they want to do. And I don't, I don't think that's actually important. Um, I think what's more important is that um, that people uh, follow where their interests lie. And I think if you can constantly be engaged in what it is that you're doing every day, um, then, you know, it, it, the, the rest will work itself out. Um, and that's absolutely how I got involved in 3D printing has been very much like, this is interesting and I, I, I mean, I, and I'm curious about this and I want to learn more. And for me, it's been a field and I'm sure it's been the same for you, Mike, like that you're just continually learning new things. You know, there's always the opportunity to learn new things and you're working in emerging te- in a, an emerging technology. Um, there's always new developments and it never gets old. Uh, so, yeah, very exciting from that, from that point of view. Um, sure. And so as we wrap up, what are you excited about for 2021? <laughs> getting out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually getting out of my house and getting into the lab. So I, I started this PhD mid-year this year. Um, 
which you know started a PhD in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but it there was there was some strategy behind that because I was like, you know, I'm I'm at home and I can't be in the lab, but this is a great time to do a literature review. Right. Um, so so that's been that's been what I've been doing um, so far. But it's I'm definitely kind of itching to um, to get into the lab and to um, and and there's a there's a business in Australia that uses FireArc, and so um, but they're in another state. So I'm really keen to go and visit them and to you know, really get the sort of hands-on um, experience uh, that I really think I need um, in order to be a good experimentalist for this PhD. Um, so so I, I'm excited about that. I really honestly haven't looked too much further. I would love, I would love to be able to get on a plane um, and travel. Uh, and, and there's one thing that I think this whole year has highlighted. I mean, I think for everyone, but I feel this very keenly because... I am so far away geographically from um, a lot of the people in the industry, a lot of businesses, um, a lot of colleagues even, um, and, and, you know, and a lot of good friends as well. So I'm, I'm just really itching to be able to get on a plane and go and, um, you know, see everyone, hopefully maybe even be at form next, next November, <laughs> which would be really great. But but um, but yeah. So there's some some tentative plans of travel next year. Um, but it's all it's all still a little bit up in the air. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining the show, and we'll hopefully see you at Form Next next year. Hopefully. Okay. Thank you.